our bodies carry a wealth of information that we often discount uh, just because of the culture in which we live. But the body is so important in as a valid source of data about what's going on in us and what our story has been. Our bodies always tell the truth. How do you forgive when the wound is still open? How do you leave a legacy of redemption instead of dysfunction? How do you trust God when your deepest fears are realized? Join me, Sarah May, along with some wise mentors along the way as we explore these and other messy heart topics and the strategies we can use to seek healing in the pain and restoration in the ruins. Welcome to the Complicated Heart Podcast. Oh man, you guys, I am so excited for today's podcast because I have the privilege of interviewing Adam Young, who is a counselor and the host of one of my favorite podcasts called The Place We Find Ourselves. It's a podcast that, I don't know, it just feels like a therapy session every time you listen to it. It's so good. It's so profound. It's so brilliant. And I love it. And I just emailed Adam and I said, Adam, I don't know what I want to ask you, but I love your podcast. I love what you're doing. I love the impact that you are making. Would you please come on my podcast? And he so graciously said, yes. Adam is a licensed clinical social worker in the states of Colorado and Georgia. He holds master degrees in social work and divinity. He's completed extensive training with the Allender Center. And for those of you who are familiar with Dan Allender, this is the center that he started. He wrote the phenomenal book, Healing the Wounded Heart, among several others. And Adam has also completed a two-week Survivors of Abuse Leadership Training Seminar. And he's certified in EMDR, which is Eye Movement Desensitization and Reprocessing which we are going to talk about in today's episode in relation to trauma. Now, we are going to touch on sexual abuse, and we're going to touch on sexual intimacy in marriage. And so just giving you a heads up, but really the overarching theme of today's podcast is processing through trauma. So let's get to it. Adam, welcome to the Complicated Heart Podcast. Thanks. It's it's good to be here. It's good to talk with you. So Adam, I read your bio and been listening to your podcast, and I really want to know what got you interested in counseling. And when I ask that question, what I'm really saying is, tell me the story of the significant thing or journey in your life that made you want to help other people. Yeah, the the thing that got me interested in counseling, frankly, was the trauma of my mother and father. Um, I was trained by my parents at a very young age to become hyper attuned to their emotional state. My mom was uh, undiagnosed borderline personality disorder. My dad was a Vietnam vet, and I was born, you know let's say five years, less than five years after he got back from Vietnam, he had full-blown PTSD. And so I grew up in a home with immense trauma. How did you get to a place where trauma wasn't just something you were experiencing, but something that you were able to walk through and then want to do that for other people? 
Yeah. I mean, it's, it's strange, but like God loves to use what was intended for our destruction to equip us to rule in his kingdom. Mm. And my parents trained me in the single most important skill that any therapist has, which is his or her exquisite attunement to the person sitting across from them. And mm. it, it, it's, it's both tragic and it's glorious, but I learned from a very young age um, in the midst of trauma, how to become attuned to the emotional state of the other people in the room. And mm-hmm. that has been used for great good, even though it developed in the midst of such heartache for me as a boy. Wow. That's actually super interesting because you learned to attune yourself to other people's emotions or the state of how they were so that you wouldn't step on any sort of like landmines. That's Yeah, that's well said. Yeah, landmines. So you're good at the thing. Do you like doing it? I love it. I love it. I mean, there's something that's just so fun about stepping. And I know that might be an odd word to use, but it's it's the appropriate word to uh, something that is so fun about stepping into the stories of trauma that people hold and that people bear and that in many ways uh, enslave people, because when we step into those places, um, the kingdom of God comes alive and freedom is at hand. Mm. When did you become a Christian? Uh, probably, you know, I was one of those kids that like went to church and I, and I liked it. I don't know why I just was interested. I have twin brothers. They weren't so much interested, but I always was. So young life in high school, you know, uh, going to church in middle school, I would be a kid who was actually taking notes on the sermon. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. That's so interesting. And so when would you say that you, cause you, I mean, you talk a lot about Jesus in your podcast. And when would you say that you feel like you turned your life over to him? High school. High school. Yeah, high school. Me too. Early, early, early high school. Yeah. And what are you most passionate about? Like when people call you up and they say, hey, I'm dealing with trauma, help. What What is the thing that you are the most passionate about? I don't know if it's one thing, but I've whittled it down to five words. I, um, I wrote a creed, kind of a personal creed a few years ago when I began reflecting on calling and what I wanted to be about in the world. And um, I'll tell you the five words and then I'll kind of explain them. So the five words are warfare, trauma, story, healing, and kingdom. And here's where the five words come from. I, I, I believe that we live in a world at war, um, hence the warfare word. I, 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 it's not any of our choice, but we have been born into a world where the forces of good and the forces of evil wage a, a oftentimes visible and oftentimes invisible war. And evil works to destroy the heart through trauma. That's the trauma word. And the way that that happens is always particular to your story. So everyone has a story. And I'm not saying everyone has been traumatized with a capital T, but every heart has been harmed. And the goal of that harm has been the destruction of the beauty of that heart. And the only way to really look at that is in the context of particular stories and particular narratives. And so story is something I'm really passionate about. And then the word healing is simply the proclamation that the story is not 
over. God is in the business of restoration. And I, I don't care how broken, how bruised, how damaged people's hearts have been through decades sometimes of harm, there is restoration that is not only possible, but I see it all the time. And there are just, there are few things that produce more awe and frankly worship than watching God heal a broken heart. And so that's the word healing. And then the last word kingdom, uh, healing is not an end in itself. I mean, I'm so passionate about the notion that every human being has been given a kingdom over which they are to rule. And uh, freedom isn't an end in itself. Uh, the end of all counseling, of all sitting with a friend, you know, at Starbucks, the end of all heart engagement has to be so that you begin to take ownership over the kingdom that has been conferred on you. Mm. And so those are the five things that I'm really passionate about. Mm, that is so good that you sat down and wrote that out. That is excellent. And just a question about the whole kingdom thing of which we each, you know, we we move through healing and freedom, but really ultimately it's so that we have what is given to us to rule. Could you just explain a little more about what you mean when you say that? Yeah. So in Luke 22, Jesus says to his disciples, and by extension to, to all of us, he says, I have conferred on you a kingdom. And, and if you look at Jesus's teaching throughout the gospels, this notion of the kingdom of God is pretty prevalent. <laughs> and he, he uses lots of metaphors. Uh, but one of the metaphors is just that you have a field. And um, that your charge is to tend to your field, to your kingdom. And so what I would say is that uh, you don't need to ask the question, what am I good at? So much as ask the question, what makes my heart sing? What do you love? What do you hate? And how has evil worked to destroy your particular reflection of the goodness and the beauty of God? And so I don't know how anyone can identify their kingdom until they are able to look in the mirror and see and name how they uniquely reflect the glory and the beauty of God, because those are the parts of them that have mm. been most assaulted. That is so good. So Adam, what is your kingdom? What do you love and what do you hate? Well, one part of my kingdom is um, engaging uh, sexual abuse. I mean, I, I just, uh, you know, maybe it sounds odd. I guess it does sound odd. But I, I just think that there is something both incredibly honoring, but frankly, um, incredibly enjoyable about stepping into the the ways that evil has worked to destroy people's hearts and their and their bodies through sexual abuse. And the the pinnacle of 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 that work for me is doing it in the context of marriages. I mean, when when people come together uh, and and covenant with one another, and then sexual abuse in one or both partners' past begins to wreak havoc in that union, um, boy, oh boy, does that create a lot of wars. And to step into uh, someone's marriage and the wars that rage because of the trauma of sexual abuse toward toward bringing healing and freedom, uh, uh, nothing is more honoring than that. It's such sacred work. That's actually really good to hear. One of the things that I've been listening to women who who watch my videos and listen to my podcast and 
read my books and such, is one of the things that people don't talk about a lot is intimacy in marriage and how it can be so mm, difficult, painful, sad, right? All of those things. Fraud is a perfect word for it. And I started to share a little bit of my story with women and it was like, I started to get letters and messages from women saying, oh my gosh, like when my husband touches me, I want to squirm, but it's not him. Like I love him. Yep. Something is being triggered is a good word, evoked. Something is coming up for the women who are writing you these letters that when they are touched sexually, uh, they're having big feelings in their body of yuck or danger or fear or terror. And it may be arousal also, but it's paired with something yucky, something scary, something dangerous. And there has to be in those moments immense kindness uh, towards their own body, towards their own story, and immense curiosity about, huh, like what is it? Because as they said in their letter, they have some awareness that it's not my husband. Yeah, There's something else going on. And those moments really, frankly, can be the beginning of stepping into a period of reflecting on uh, what is my sexual story? What is the story of how my body and my heart have been harmed sexually? Because nobody gets to adulthood without some measure of sexual harm. Nobody. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So would you say that one of the first steps for women listening who have decided to stop sort of judging their responses, thoughts, all of that, and start, you know, to listen and say, mm, what are you telling me? What's happening here? Would you say one of the first things to do would be to say, what is my sexual story? Or would you say, call a therapist, <laughs> talk to a friend? What would you say to that woman? I think it depends on how much their body is reacting. In other words, if, um, if, if you're getting so dysregulated in that moment that you either go numb or you panic, um, that's a pretty good indication that you need some help, mm-hmm. like that you, that you probably want to get a trauma-trained therapist yeah. as you begin to reflect on this stuff. But if you're not, if you're not numbing out and you're not panicking, you're just, you're just having some, some, some feelings, you know, like some anxiety. I I think it's, it's, it's okay. I think it's good to begin to reflect on where might this be coming from? And really the way to engage that very often is through your body. Your body can lead there. I mean, our bodies carry a wealth of information that we often discount, uh, just because of the culture in which we live. But the body is so important mm-hmm. in as a valid source of data about what's going on in us and what our story has been. Our bodies always tell the truth. Yes. They just do. Yes, that is so good. And I was... I have been reading um, the book, The Body Keeps the Score, and it has just completely blown my mind. Like all of the ways our bodies remember things that mm-hmm. we don't consciously necessarily remember and how much there is to learn along these same lines, just because I've had so many women talking to me about this lately, what hope have you seen? Well, it may sound outlandish, but um, if you move into the places where you hold the most shame, you will find the places where you bear the most glory. And that sounds so counterintuitive. And nowhere is it more true than, than with sexual shame. Whenever... Um, 
we experience sexual shame, the tendency is to just not go there. Like it's, it's scary, Mm -hmm. it's shameful. Mm -hmm. And we feel like if we explore, we're going to just find more things wrong with us and more kind of accusations against us. And all I can say is that nothing could be further from the truth. If you have somebody that can walk with you into your places of sexual shame, uh, you will be surprised to find how much glory, and by that I mean how much of the image of God that you uniquely reflect, you will find in those very places. And it's important to say, and I know you say this in your podcast too, that that doesn't happen immediately. I mean, it takes time. And usually there's a lot of sadness, maybe some depression, anger, a whole bunch of other feelings that come along with going there. It's not easy. And, you know, often I think who has time to like take a time out from their life to feel all these things. Right. Right. And yet somehow we, we just trust God and, and walking through it in the middle of our lives right now. Yeah. And the question of who has time, I mean, it's a, it's, it's, it's a relevant question in our culture, but if you think about it like this, like sexual arousal is one of God's greatest gifts to his creatures. And if there is some, and and for who of us is there not the case that there is something broken there in our relationships, it is so worth it for you to engage whatever brokenness is there so that you can experience the goodness and the beauty and the fullness of who you are as a son or a daughter of God. I mean, don't let sexuality be a place that you ignore. Um, And it's not that it's not going to be scary. Of course it will be scary. Uh, But the courage is so worth it Mm -hmm. for the fruit that you can reap when you look at places that hold immense shame and and maybe terror. Yeah. I want you to talk to us a little bit about family of origin. And the reason I want to do this is because of how important our family of origin is and how that impacts us. Yeah. So I mean it's really God's fault. Um we're created in the we're, we're created in the image of a triune God. And and so we're God is a we, not an I. Hmm. That means that our hearts are inherently social. I mean through and through. They are relation we are relational beings. We are created for intimacy for connection. We are created to know and be known. And the place where that first happens is in the gaze between the infant and the mother and the father. And in those moments, whether it's, you know, the, the day you're born, uh, six months old, three years old, but early, in those moments, our brains are formed more than in adulthood, the, the the foundation of our brains, I mean, we know this, the brain grows at an astronomical rate uh, the first 18 months of life. And the brain grows based on two things, genes and life experience. So uh, what is not genetic is, is relational. Your relationship with the two people that you spent the most time with, your parents, in the first 18 months of your life has a profound 
influence on your brain. And so merely from like a neuroscience perspective, we have to say that your relationship with your parents was massively impactful to the development of your brain. Okay. So how about after those, you know, first 18 months, or you have a kid who's adopted, or you have somebody who had trauma in those first 18 months, or how does this play out in our lives? I mean, obviously in a variety of ways, but again, a lot of the listeners who listen to this podcast are people who have had really complicated, troubled relationships with family and sure, what, you know, how do they, um, you know, it's like everything, we, we, we get these lies in our lives and we learn how to relate because of our families. And then all of a sudden we start saying, wait, these are terrible ways of relating and I don't want to be like this anymore. How do we get free of some of those things that come from our family of origin? Well, we're wounded in relationship and we're healed in relationship. And um, a relationship with a therapist is one way to experience healing, but it the, the relationships, I mean, the most healing thing, so if there's a traumatized person and you could kind of script something out for their healing, the single most healing thing for that person would be to somehow put them in relationship with other securely attached people. That would do far more mm. than the best therapist. It is, th- it is through s- relationship with other healthy people that our brains heal. That is so excellent. I feel like everything you say, I'm just going to be like, yes, that is brilliant. That is so good. But it's, I've never heard it put exactly like that. And that's so true. And I'm sure listeners can attest to this, but I can for sure, like with my own, some traumatic things growing up, when I got married to a normal man who had a normal family, and then I've been married to him now for almost 16 years, and I can see, watch a progression, you know, of maturity and healing just by being around people who are emotionally and spiritually healthy. It, yes. Very true. Yes. But the other thing is our tendency when we have been uh, wounded and harmed relationally is to reenact that in our other relationships. And so most traumatized people, most deeply wounded people are not in relationship with healthy people. Then mm-hmm. they're in relationship with other wounded and broken people mm-hmm. because it feels familiar and it feels normal. Yeah. And, and so um, it's hard to, uh, when two people are insecurely attached, to use attachment language, it's hard to have a healthy relationship. And that's, for many people, that's what marriage is. Marriage is often two insecurely attached people, not always, but often when we're talking about trauma, trying to figure out how to get to secure attachment land. And it is a war, uh, but it's so worth it. Mm, that's really good. Okay, so one of the things that I loved most on your podcast was the healing series you did. It was phenomenal. The parts one through three blew my mind. And I know I keep using that phrase and I've been <laughs> in therapy. I've done different counseling. I've read tons of books, but you know, God always uses where you're at, what, what you're listening to anyway. And that series, when you talked about what you learned from I can't remember the woman's name, but she talks about this. Kath, Kathy Lorzell. Okay, Kathy Lorzell, yes. I could not find that U diagram anywhere. I Googled and Googled and Googled. 
Yeah, I don't think it's out there. You've got to actually mm-hmm. go to the Allender Center to have it put up on a on, on, on a the screen. screen. Well, I yeah. drew my own. <laughs> okay. okay, and I tell fair. everybody about it um, now. And credit you and her. I do have her name written down, and that was so eye opening. It's like you know the truth yes. of a thing, but to see it and yes. to have it explained. So the question, I guess, I, I have for you. Uh, Because like you said, we've all gone through some kind of trauma, even if it's not capital T trauma, right? And so we're all going to, at some point, most of us, I suppose, if we choose to accept the invitation to go down into the Saturday experience. Actually, why don't you do this, Adam? Could you, in like a couple of minutes, explain the U diagram for the listeners? And then I want to ask you a question about the Saturday experience. Sure. Yeah. So if you imagine a U and on, uh, at the beginning of the U, it represents Friday or the crucifixion. And then on the other side of the U, on the other side of the valley is Sunday or resurrection. And the basic idea behind this U diagram is that the Saturday experience, which is the bottom of the U, is a necessary place to pass through when we're moving from harm or crucifixion into life or resurrection. And what we want to do, what every fiber of our being wants to do, is to jump somehow across this dotted line from Friday to Sunday. We want to jump to newness, to healing, to resurrection, to hope, without descending, without going down, without experiencing the death of Saturday. And the U diagram is simply a way of saying, look, um, there's no way to do that. And the, the descent into hell, to use Christian theology, the descent into Saturday is a necessary part of the experience that Jesus calls us to in the following of him. And it is an obedience unto death, And that death looks like sorrow, it looks like grief, it looks like hopelessness, it can look like despair, but there's no way to avoid it if you want genuine healing and freedom to exist for you. Okay, so here's the question. Why? Why do we have to go to that place of such pain and even a word you described, despair, I think is a really Mm -hmm. good word. What is it about actually feeling those things or facing those things that lends itself to beginning to go on the upward trajectory towards healing and freedom and resurrection? Why do we have to be in that place of sorrow? Yeah, that's a great question. I, I don't I don't know the answer to that, except to say that it's only the truth that sets people free. Mm. And there can be no genuine healing without an honest naming of how your heart has been harmed. Mm. So the feelings and the emotions that you're experiencing as you go through your day, the so-called negative emotions, those are there for a reason. The your body is telling you something is wrong. And that's why you're feeling anxiety, or that's why you're feeling despair or hopelessness. And so you're getting connected to the devastation and the desolation in your heart. And that devastation, that burned down forest, if you will, exists there for a reason. And that reason is found in the particularity of your story. So you can either look at that honestly 
and engage it, or you can live in some measure of numbness or denial. And uh, all I know is that in order to experience freedom, there has to be an engagement with what has been true for you. And God meets us in those true places, in those broken places. It's it's always a surprise. Yes. It's um, it, it's it's always different and out in a sense out of our control, mm. different than we expected it to be, and it will be different than than your friend or than the other person or the person speaking from the stage. It will be different for mm-hmm. you. I love in the third episode of the healing series, which you guys, you just, you all need to go and listen. If, if you haven't, you must listen to it. The links will be in the show notes for it. I loved when you said, it's always a surprise. You said, I don't care how many times God has come through for yes. you because it's so true. You think, mm-hmm. no, this time it's not, you know, it's no, really this time, nothing's going to, it can't possibly change. And that's why it's a miracle. That's why it's a surprise. That's why it's resurrection because you don't expect it. You can't anticipate it and you have no idea how it's going to, what it's going to look like. And that's why it's so surprising. Yes. Yes. And that gives hope. Like in my mind, knowing that I can't figure this out, there's not a formula for it. Mm Mm-hmm. There's not. There's not a formula for healing. Mm-hmm. There are no steps that you can do. There is um, there is a, a process that's kind of illustrated in that U diagram, mm-hmm. but there are no steps on that U diagram. There's just yeah. a, a, a skeletal process yes. that's represented uh, graphically as this U that says, look, if you want to go from Friday to Sunday, there has to be a reckoning with Saturday. Yes. And when Jesus says, I mean, if you look in, <laughs> if you look, especially in Luke or Mark, you just read the story from beginning to end. Yeah. Jesus is talking about this all the time yeah. and nobody gets it. And mm. that's why we have a hard time getting it now. Yes. Yeah. And it's because it's not really explainable and it isn't a formula, like, like you said, and it, it there's just so much mystery to it. In my own yes. counseling recently, my uh, counselor was explaining how I can go to the hysterical side of things. And she's like, but the more we you know talk about it, work through it, the more you'll get to the historical side of it. And and I'll say, but how? Like, how are we going to get there? Because like nothing's changed or doesn't feel like it's changed. Like, how? And she goes, well, how did you get through, you know, something else traumatic that we talked about that I've come out on the other side of, so to speak? Mm-hmm. And I'm like, well, I don't know. I mean, I do know in some ways, but like really, ultimately, there's a point or points down the line where it's just... You were blind and then you see. I don't know how to explain it. It's such an interesting mystery Mm -hmm. how we can go from despair to joy. Yeah, and the the biblical word for it is rescue. Rescue, yes, yes, yes. So I want to just say this to the listeners real quick. So many of you have listened and know my abortion story. And this is the area where my counselor was like, well, how did you go from not being able to talk about it to being able to talk about it? And it was because I talked about it Mm -hmm. (laughs) with, you know, with a counselor, worked through Mm -hmm. things that God led me through. And so now when I'm facing something, I think, well, God did a surprising work that I can't explain. So I'm just Mm going to trust that he can do it again. Mm -hmm. And that's the hope. Mm -hmm. Okay, so one of the things I've been learning about with trauma, and as I've been listening to your podcast, I thought it was interesting. I read that you are trained in EMDR, 
eye movement desensitization. What is it? Repetition or something? Reprocessing. Reprocess. Just tell us the whole thing. What does it mean? What does it stand for? Yeah, it's a it's a horrible name. So EMDR stands for eye movement desensitization and reprocessing. Yes, thank you. We need a new name for that because <laughs> everybody messes it up. Even when I know it, I say it wrong. My friends say it wrong. Okay, I've never had this, but I have heard about it for years. And I remember the very first time I heard about it was in my pre-marriage counseling. And my counselor was like, you might want to try that. And I was like, that sounds super weird. Yeah, it does. And then I ignored it for years and I've still never done it, but I'm super warmed up to it now. So could you just explain to us all what it is and what your experience is with it and how it, why does it help people who have had trauma? Sure. So, um, By way of introduction, it's important to note that EMDR is incredibly effective with adult onset traumas. That is very different than developmental trauma. Mm. So um, EMDR is phenomenally, I mean, it's almost like how can something, and I'll explain what it is in a minute, but how can any therapeutic modality be this effective with adult onset traumas? But EMDR is that. So what I mean by adult onset, I mean... You are a securely attached adult who does not have developmental trauma, no physical, sexual, emotional abuse growing up, and then you are uh, traumatized as an adult, whether it's a car crash or war mm. or rape, but you're, you're traumatized as an adult. EMDR is incredibly effective with that. It is not um, at nearly as effective with developmental trauma. Um, it doesn't mean it doesn't help, and I'll explain. Here's what it does. Basically... When you are sleep, well, let me first say this. We don't know why it works. Nobody does. Um, the hypothesis is that when you are sleeping, we know this part, your eyes go back and forth uh, in something called rapid eye movement, REM mm-hmm. sleep. And your eyes dart back and forth when you are in this, this mode of sleep. And everyone's had the experience of going to sleep um, upset about something, and then you wake up. And it's, you're just so much more at peace with that thing. It may not be resolved, mm. but there's a, you're not nearly as amped up in the morning as you were when you went to sleep. And what yeah. we think is that through what's called bilateral stimulation, which just means both hemispheres of your brain being activated as your, as your excuse me, eyes go back and forth. As your eyes go back and forth, both hemispheres of your brain are stimulated. And what we think is it helps the brain to process distress and dysregulated emotion and bring you to a a place of more integration is really the word. Mm -hmm. And so EMDR is, um, when you're with a therapist, you, uh, they stimulate your both hemispheres of your brain. And one way uh, that we do that is through eye movements. So you follow the therapist's finger or a light bar as a light goes back and forth and you, mimic REM sleep. In other words, you're, you make your eyes go back and forth. You can also use tappers, um, which are, you just hold them in your hands if the eye thing kind of weirds you out. But the point is, is it's bilateral stimulation. And then when your body is in that state, uh, the therapist will help you recall a painful emotion in a particular moment in time. 
And that's the trauma, whatever Trump traumatic memory you're working through. And what it does is it gets you connected to your right limbic brain. In other words, the place in your brain where emotions and bodily sensations that have not been integrated are kind of living and hanging out. And EMDR helps you have one foot in the past, one foot in the present, so that you can integrate what is disconnected in your brain, namely very strong emotions and bodily mm-hmm. sensations and, and disturbing memories. So why is it not as effective with, say, childhood trauma and trying to get your body regulated from what your body knows and what your mind knows now when those things aren't working? I think it's just because the um, the 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 effect on the brain of developmental trauma is so much more severe than an adult onset trauma when your brain is already healthy. I mean, it goes back to what we were saying earlier. There is just no substitute for having a foundation of a healthy neuronal circuitry in your brain that that develops from secure attachment with love, loving parents growing up. And when that has not been your experience, your brain is... Um, Oh, how do we say it? It's broken. It's broken. And and it's really, really there's no way to quickly rewire that level of brokenness apart from relationships. Relationships, relationships, healthy ones. And hopefully one of those is a relationship with a therapist. Yeah. Wow. So how, what have you seen? Like how long does it take people? Like, let's say you have somebody with a traumatic childhood experience, whether, you know, physical abuse, sexual abuse, something that happened and they've grown up and how, and their bodies react, but their minds don't jive with that. Like they don't understand why, why is my body doing this? What's going on here? Is talking about it, like talking through it, like that Saturday experience. And I know I'm asking something and not counting the miracle here or the surprise or the mystery. But how, I mean, can people really heal through talking these things through? Uh, Not just talking. Uh, It's rare. Just talking. um, And this is why it's just, it's so good to live when we do. I mean, we know so much more about the brain and the body in trauma now than 20 years ago. It's just, it's like it's a different field. And basically what we know is that merely talking is not going, and very often it does more harm than good, merely talking about trauma. That's interesting. Uh, what I would like you to follow up on yeah, that after you finish Yeah, so what, what, what's really important is attunement to the affect of your client when they are engaging in some very painful traumatic memories. And so there has to be affect regulation in the moment. And when our bodies get dysregulated, either into panic, terror, rage, or numbing out and dissociating, nothing healing in the brain can happen. So you can talk, Mm. talk, talk, talk about horrible events and if you're in a state of dysregulation, uh, oh, please don't do it. Um, 
Can you describe that to the listeners when you say affect and dysregulation so they understand what you're talking about? Sure. So your your affect is simply a fancy word for your moment to moment bodily experience. And if you think about it on a scale from zero to 10, um, when you are kind of alert and present and you have a slight feeling of excitement, you're at like five to six on that scale. Uh, hopefully that is where you're at right now listening to this podcast. Now, if you begin to get anxious and then move up, you go to seven to eight, and nine and ten is panic, terror, rage. That's called hyperarousal. It's it's accompanied by increased heart rate, faster breathing. You often have this jittery, kind of flooded feeling of chemicals in your body. Uh, that's hyperarousal. You can also move down from five to six towards four, three, two, one, zero. And that's a state of shutdown, numbness, dissociation. It's, uh, it's connected with a feeling of just the life has drained out of me. And I'm not really present and I'm not feeling much of anything. I'm just not really here. I'm detached. That's called hypoarousal. Both hypoarousal and hyperarousal are states of dysregulation. Your affect is dysregulated. When you're in either of those states, so anything outside of four to seven, when you're outside that range, your body is suffering immensely. And when our body is suffering like that, our prefrontal cortex is offline. And so nothing of integration can happen in the brain, which is to say nothing of healing. So, okay. So two questions based on that. Um, The first one is, so how does, I guess you're saying, talking about it, how does it make it worse though? Is it because it keeps putting your body into those unhealthy states? Is that why it would be worse to keep talking? Okay. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. So what you're saying is essentially, it's not the talking, it's talking with somebody who's attuned and caring and can bring you back to a state of balance. Yes. Somebody who can track with you Mm -hmm. what's happening for you on the inside. I mean, Mm. you know, if, if you have a story of sexual abuse that you're sharing with a friend, uh, you are going to get dysregulated yeah. if you get close to the trauma. Now, some people will stay will stay so far away from the story mm-hmm. that they'll they'll tell you, and it's like you're it's a journalist recounting an event. Yes, but that doesn't do anything healing either. You're just disconnected yeah. from the girl or the boy in the story, and that's what you call the fifty thousand foot view, right? Yes. Okay. Yes. Mm-hmm. And so there has to be a connection uh, to the bodily sensations, the emotions, uh, and the and the way you get connected to that is through detail, through mm-hmm. telling a story on the ground level. Now, if you have a friend that you feel safe enough with that you can begin to talk to them about some of the more painful moments of your life, uh, you're going to get dysregulated. Because when you were 10 years old and this was happening to you, your body got dysregulated. Mm-hmm. And you go back into a similar state in the retelling. And in that moment, what you need is you need somebody to be with you and to track with you to help bring you back to four to seven land. Mm. And is that what ultimately you think brings your body back to regulation so that when you're in a situation that's triggering something, eventually you'll know how to bring yourself back to regulation? Is that 
sort of the goal of that? Yeah. We're always regulated by another before we can self-regulate. And so self-regulation is another word for maturity or healing. And that comes Mm. in time, but we were designed, again, it goes back to how we were created in the image of a triune God. We were designed to be regulated by another. That is the job of mother and father, to bring regulation to a dysregulated three-year-old. And when that was not the case for you, when your dad was checked out or your mom was too caught up in her own pain, her own trauma, her own emotions to be present to you, when your crying actually made her mad rather than softened her and made her tender, then you were forced to regulate yourself and you can't do that as a three-year-old. That's tough because I think there's so many kids who are having to do that on their own. Yes. Mm. Yes. And that's what we mean when we talk about developmental trauma. For the person who's listening right now and they've, you know, been listening to our conversation and something is opening up for them, something is making sense to them for the first time, realizing maybe that their trauma is real. Cause I know a lot of us we say, like, oh, it's not that big of a deal. <laughs> I'm fine. Um, what advice and what next steps would you say to that person? The biggest thing I would say is uh, two words, kindness and curiosity. There has to be an immense kindness to your own heart here. And few things can be as kind as giving yourself and, frankly, your loved ones the gift of funding your own therapy. I mean, find Mm -hmm. a trauma-trained therapist uh, that you feel safe with and begin to explore um, the the daily experience of what it's like to be in your body with your emotions, with your bodily sensations, what it's like for you to be in your relationships that are difficult and distressful at times and talk through that will lead you into your story. You know, I am going to ask you in a minute if you take clients (laughs) via Skype or phone, but first just an interesting thought. I would just love your opinion on So I've been listening to, I listen to lots of podcasts and I particularly, I don't know why, but I enjoy crime podcasts. And one of the ones I was listening to recently, the one woman, her friend was killed when she was like 15 and it's been, you know, 30 years now. And the woman said that she was in psychotherapy for over seven years and even talking about it still triggers her 30 years later and nothing's changing. That's a big deal. It's a big deal and it's and it's sad. I mean, if you're if you don't feel like you there is movement inside, if your lived experience is not different today than a year ago and you're in therapy, you probably need to find another therapist. But it does take a long time. I mean, there uh, you know, 7 years of therapy that that's not um uh, too long. The, therapy can take three years. It can take 15 years. The, the length is not the issue. The issue is, is there movement? Is your, is your fundamental experience of life in relationships different now than it was a year ago? And if you're still stuck in the same place, uh, you just have to ask, what are you doing? What, what's going on in the, in the therapeutic hour that's not making movement for you? Um, and it doesn't mean that you're not uh, 
uh, exerting lots of effort or doing good work. It's just something is stuck. And that's a good indication that you might want to get a different therapist. Yeah, that's good. Okay. Well, so Adam, do you take clients via Skype or phone? Because I know people are listening and they're going to go, can we, can, does he, will he take me as a client or are you only local? I, I am only, uh, well, it's not that I'm only local. I don't do remote work, so I don't do Skype or phone anymore. Um, but I do do three-day intensives. Um, and mm-hmm. so if people are interested in traveling to it is absolutely gorgeous out here in Fort Collins, Colorado. It's an hour north mm-hmm. of Denver. They can certainly email me and we can talk about doing an intensive. But one part, one kind of requirement for an intensive is that you have a counselor lined up for when you return if you need him or her. Well, you just disappointed a lot of people. <laughs> but it does make sense that you have somebody face-to-face uh, that you can process through. So I think that's good. Well, Adam, this was so fantastic. And I know I'm going to get people asking questions and I know I'm going to ask you for a follow-up interview at some point. It's been fun to be with you. This is, uh, these are very important questions and they're hard questions. They're hard questions. Yeah. I mean, we, we basically skimmed these things. And so, yeah. So everybody listening, um, you need to go to adamyoungcounseling.com. All links to his podcast, his site, everything will be in the show notes. So for sure, make sure you go check it out. Thanks a lot, Adam, for being here. Okay. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Complicated Heart Podcast. Loved this episode? Head over to iTunes to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. Reviews are how people know if they should listen or not. So please, if you like the show, take a minute and give it a review. Thank you so much. If you want to know more, check out sarahmay.com forward slash the complicated heart podcast. See you next time.